There's only two genders. If a man has a penis, you know very well he's a man. And I've got that out there too. Y'all can hear that one mm. online. If a person has a penis, you know very well he's a man. Period. If a person has a nutsack, he's a man. He can tuck it to conceal it, let it dangle and reveal it. If a person has a nutsack, he's a man. Oh, well, that's what I believe. Listen, living, listening to Synchronon. Sick and wrong. Yes, you're listening to Synchronon. The Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. God, what a bunch of scumbags. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. I'm on your host, E. Simon. Hi, I'm Kate Rambo. Hiya. What's the crack there, Kate Rambo? Uh, not much, mate. I have a spot on my chin. It's annoying me. <laughs> I noticed. Um, it does have a name. It's one of those types of spots. Oh, really? What'd yeah. you name it? What was the last one? Jaime Weiss. Jaime, yeah, was it Jaime Weinstein? No, it was Jaime Weiss was the last oh, one. Oh, Jaime Weiss. Yeah, this should be like Arnie Rothstein. What, are you just naming them after Jewish gangsters? Yeah, because they were blight of, on that's me. That's kind of anti-Semitic to name your spots, which are kind of a blight on your face after Jewish gangsters. Well, I'm impressed by the Jewish gangsters, though. They made more money than I ever will in a lifetime. I know, but the, but the, but you don't welcome spots. No, nobody welcomes a spot. But nobody welcomes a mafia member into their life either. Everything is anti-Semitic these days. <laughs> it's true. So maybe, Kate Rambo, you're getting these spots because you haven't fully recovered from your birthday week. I do think it is because I have not fully recovered from my amazing birthday week. I had a birthday week this year. Yeah, it, it it was it it was a bit crazy. It was off the off the heze, as the kids say. <laughs> do they? <laughs> How many kids do you know? You nuns. I'm, I'm no. I'm just saying. I'm pretty cool. I'm like one of those hip, cool, forty nine year old men. Like Steve Buscemi. Hello, yeah. hello, kids. How's it going? I mean, you can hear about it. Last night, uh, Kate and I went to an all ages backyard event at the poor kids' mansion. In uh, in Lincoln Heights to see a, a, a great metal show, and uh, and yes, I, I did. I definitely probably was one of the oldest men there. I liked it when you threw your back out when you got into the pit. <laughs> yeah, that was that. I don't, you can hear about that on uh, on the on the Patreon and second show this week. But I I don't advise men of my age to get into pit with these youngsters. They're vicious. They are vicious animals. <laughs> They're animals, I tell you. <laughs> Still, I'm still hurting from it. Anyway, moving on. Kay Rambo, I have a hypothetical for you. Oh, here we go. Okay, I'm ready. What would you do? What would you do if you found out that Jimmy Savile was the original founder of McCoy's Crisps, the Ridge kind? Would you still eat them? Yeah. You, would, you wouldn't even care that, that Jimmy Savile is like, these are my favorite crisps. I ate them pretty much after every time I committed a crime while masturbating, and that's why I made these crisps. You know what his actual favorite food was? What? Pork pies, which I think if you are insane enough to say that pork pies is your favorite food, you are a month. <laughs> and that was a warning sign enough because pork pies are a bit minging. They're no one's favorite food. Well, how many British people do you think stopped eating pork pies because of Jimmy Savile? None. So, so this wouldn't affect you. If Jimmy Savile's like, you know, McCoy's Chris is my favorite, you're not going to stop eating McCoy's. No, for me to boycott a company, the company has to be like perpetually evil. 
over and over and over again. Like, you know, I try and avoid uh, Nestle's, as we say in the North, or Nestle, if you want to be that way. I try and avoid their products. I try and avoid Procter & Gamble, and I try and... Cadbury's. They're the free ones, or if I like... If I'm looking at products and I turn it over and it says Procter & Gamble, then I put it back down. Even if I really want it, I'm like, I'm not buying that because they're fucking evil. All right, how about this? What if the family that started MAC Cosmetics are Holocaust deniers? Would you still continue to buy their products? That would be a hard one because MAC is my favorite makeup (laughs) brand and I'm very devoted to MAC and one day they will make a huge comeback again. But uh, uh, yeah, they would have to say something worse than Holocaust deniers. What if they're like, it's make-believe and it's a conspiracy that the Jews started? I'd be like, it's make-believe. Like how makeup (laughs) is make-believe. Would you still, but I mean, would that sway you to be like, ah, shit, now I got to find another brand? It would put me off them slightly. I probably wouldn't, if people said, oh, I love that lipstick, what is it? I would lie. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't say it was MAC. I would say it was something else. I kind of empathize with you because if like the founder of Taco Bell, Glenn Bell, you know, his last name actually was Bell. Glenn Bell, what a name. Glenn Bell, yeah. If uh, the founder of Taco Bell was a, you know, unrepentant pedophile, I think I'd still eat there. Yeah, because I think the company has to be perpetually evil over and over and over again. But just because the founder turned out to be a dirty, like, pedophile, like probably Walt Disney was a pedophile, they say, you know, like people are not going to stop watching Disney movies. Speaking of anti-Semites. Yeah. Um, But I guess what I'm getting at here is that brands, famous brands, brands, you know, Brands that you've been, uh, uh, you know, purchasing their their items for decades now, aren't immune to having skeletons in their closets. Absolutely so, not. Yeah, and and that's the thing. And when you do find this information out, will it deter you from purchasing their products again? So, for example, there are a lot of well-known and popular brands that were directly involved in supporting the Nazis. Yeah, I mean, Coco Chanel, Hugo Boss, VW. Yeah, the fashion free. designer Hugo Boss was an active member of the Nazi party during World War II. Um, he produced uniforms for the SS and the Hitler Youth, sometimes using forced labor of French and Polish prisoners. I'm going to take back Coco Chanel. She was doing other stuff. Well, yeah, Coco Chanel is someone we might cover in a future show. But yeah, she, but, but she was still actively involved in supporting the Nazi regime. In a way, yes. Um. There's a company called J.A.B. Holdings. Have you ever heard of that? J.A.B. Holdings. No, I don't know. J.A.B. Holding Company. They're the conglomerate behind uh, notable brands like Panera, Pret-a-Manger, Krispy Kreme, um, Aubampane. Ab- I don't know if I'm saying that right, but... Um, Do, wait, wait, just quickly. Do you have Pret-a-Manger? Do you have that in a... You have Pret's in America? We don't have Pret's here. You know, there might be Pret's in some... I think there's a Pret at the LAX International Airport. All right, because that's weird that, like, Pret would be thrown in with these very American well, brands. JB Holding Company owns them all. Yeah, And they're controlled by Germany's billionaire Ryman family. Uh, German newspaper Bild uh, did an expose and found that the, uh, the founders of JB, Albert Ryman Sr. and Albert Ryman Jr., were fervent supporters of the Nazi party. And yeah. during World War II, they used Russian civilians and French prisoners of war as forced laborers. Making your really overpriced Pret sandwiches. I think everyone has a little phase with Pret where you because you feel very bougie when you go into a Pret. It's not like going to a Greg's every day. Like you can go to Greg's every day and you can survive. But like one trip to Pret and you're in your overdraft. 
Like, yeah, pretzel you know expensive. I mean, I mean the, the food's all right, though. Good sandwiches. I do like the sandwiches. But yet, and they have wine. You're and supporting beer. Nazis. So, yeah, but the, come on, they're German. Either they supported the Nazis or they were going to lose all their businesses. Like, I'm kind of with them keeping the family spirit going. They have made amends trying to address the controversy through various phil- philanthropic contributions, but still founded by Nazi supporters, as well as uh, the uh, very popular shoe brands Adidas and Puma. Yeah, that's a popular one. It's not going to stop me wearing Adidas, mate. Same with me. I own like several pairs. Yeah. And Run DMC. I mean, that's what I think about when I think about Adidas, not Nazi supporting the Nazi party. But it's it's an interesting story of these two brothers that founded those companies, which I didn't know about. And we're not going to get into, but I'm just going to do a quick summary. The Dassler brothers, Adolf and Rudolf Dassler, worked together in this shoe business initially. But then when the war hit, they kind of had to they convert their university into making like weapons and munitions for the Wehrmacht. But then afterwards, Adolf went on to found Adidas while Rudolf launched Puma. Um, neither brother was particularly committed to Nazism. And even despite their, uh, you know, their, their political leanings, they even supported uh, quietly, supported African-American athlete Jesse Owens uh, during the uh, 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin. Yeah, supported him quietly. Like, they were like... Yay, no, they gave him a pair of Adidas. Oh, did they? And that's yeah. why he ran faster. But after the war, the two brothers had a major falling out. One brother ratted him out uh, to like the uh, Allied forces and said that he was supporting the Nazis, while the other brother ratted out uh, ratted out him for various reasons. And then they ended up having two separate factories because they split the original family shoe factory into two separate factories. Adolf founded Adidas, Rudolf Puma in the same town. And uh, yeah, people like it was a rivalry. Like people used to get, they call it like bent necking when you look down to see which were you wearing the Pumas or you wearing the Adidas to see who you support. Well, in Northern Trav culture, that still goes on. Like, could you imagine? I can imagine Hitler in a full on um, Adidas trackie, but I couldn't imagine him in like a Puma trackie. Like, nah, not a Puma one. Uh, maybe a Kappa, a Kappa pop pants. I could see Hitler rocking a pair of that. And I could see Hitler doing like the Slav squat with like a bottle of like really cheap vodka hanging but out of his hand. But he, he wasn't a big fan of Poland. And that's usually that's like a Slav Rush, All right, thing. it would have to be like obviously German vodka. Schnapps. Maybe, okay, we'll maybe if schnapps. Hugo Boss designed the tracksuit, he might wear it. The Hugo Boss probably does have tracksuits, <laughs> but like they would never SS be as an iconic as an uh, Adidas tracksuit. They're like the most iconic. These brothers never reconciled. <laughs> and even the family still aren't particularly fond of each other. You know, being Puma is a bit shit, in it? Puma. I prefer it is a bit Adidas. shit. Yeah. Like, uh, I just would never buy, like, I buy uh, Nike high tops or I buy Adidas high tops. I don't fucking buy Puma high tops. The one Puma shoe I wanted was a shoe that was uh, came out in like the late 80s. Can't find it now, but it's called the Puma Beast. And it had real fur. Not real fur, but like faux fur oh. for the different animals. You can get like a tiger. Oh, that's you can get pretty a cool. zebra one. Yeah, I've wanted one for years. I remember at the time, my mom was like, no, David, too expensive. And they look stupid. <laughs> I bet they did look stupid, though. I know, but they were so cool. And there was like one kid in school that was rocking Puma Beasts, like the leopard ones. I'm like, man, that kid's so cool. I remember when Adidas used to be fucking expensive. Because that's the thing with Chavs, man. Like, they wear their money. Their money. Tracksuits yeah. are, are expensive. Gold jewelry it's is It's all expensive. about, like, you know, uh, the, the periphery. You want to appear that you have money. Well, yeah, that's totally true. But I do love a good Chav in a full-on Adidas tracksuit. 
So in uh, Edwin Blank's 2001 book, IBM and the Holocaust, uh, IBM apparently provided extensive technological support to Nazi Germany for 12 years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, pretty early on in the world of computers. Uh, but yeah, they, they, they definitely supported the Nazis at the time. So they must have been part of Operation Paperclip then. Well, Thomas Watson Sr., who, who was uh, one of the founders of the company, said he had no idea what the Nazis were using the technology for. And that IBM's German operations came under control of the Nazi authorities prior to, to and during World War II. Okay. So they had been using their technology, I think probably like really uh, prototypical databases at the time. It wasn't really like full-on computers yet. Yeah. But uh, they, they did assist the Nazis. Is it their fault? No. I mean, they wouldn't even know. Everybody knows about uh, the car brands Volkswagen, uh, Porsche, BMW, and Audi are all under the umbrella of the Volkswagen Group, and all four brands um, you know, have a very dark past when it comes to the Nazis in World War II. You say that, though, but they also advanced technology, and because they were making fucking tanks, and all, like World War II in terms of stuff like that, machinery, mechanics, is way more interesting than World War I. So, yeah, you can say, yeah, they helped the Nazis, but at the same time, they also helped the world. Yeah, with this, with the with the labor of like Jewish prisoners, Russian prisoners, Polish prisoners. Oh, that's just a, slave labor. That's what on, I'm saying. Go, go At break. the behest of Hitler. So yeah, you know, you know, it's funny. My father would never ever buy a BMW. Oh, what do you know? What did he have an acronym for? What like BMW? That, men, no, he just like men. BMW. He wouldn't buy a BMW. He'd never buy a Volkswagen. I don't the think. You know, I don't think he really had a. I never really remember he had much of an opinion on Porsche, but. Yeah, BMWs were like the antichrist to him. <laughs> so it's interesting because Hitler sometimes tries to take credit for inventing the Autobahn, which never happened during uh, during the Nazi period. That was already kind of well on on you know being created before the Nazis. But he did envision like these new highways to allow German citizens to move freely throughout Europe for work and leisure. And so what they needed was an affordable, low maintenance car kind of like henry ford's model t who he hitler was a big fan of henry ford and henry ford was a big fan of hitler my dad didn't like ford either (laughs) um so he directed (laughs) ferdinand porsche to develop a car an affordable simple reliable you know automobile and so uh he went to work and he um you know ended up building this car that um you know, like uh, um, after like 1970, was it 1972 is one of the biggest brand names like in the world, Volkswagen. Um, yet it was all built with slave labor. Oh, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet along yeah. the way, haven't you? Haven't you? Come on. The Quant family, who were, uh, you know, the founders of BMW. I thought you were going to talk about beloved Mary Quant then. I was going to throw my wine in your face. They were uh, very longtime powerful BMW shareholders. They benefited by taking sc- over scores of Jewish businesses during World War II. You know. Yep. You know. And they do express <laughs> profound regret for doing that and using slave labor and supporting Hitler. But, you know, it was, it was part of the time. That's what you had to do. As well as Audi's predecessor, Auto Union, they relied on Jewish slave labor during the war. I imagine a lot of businesses relied on Jewish. Like, look at Schindler. He was yeah. using them. And, and Russian slave guy. labor and Polish slave labor and French slave labor. I mean, that's what kind of built these brands. And now, I mean, BMW is huge. I love the, I would love to have like a vintage, like a 1980s or 1990s BMW, uh, like a Beamer to rock around in. They're great. But that's the thing. 
a lot of these companies, when you when you first you know read about the company and you you hear the interviewer the, an interview with the CEO talking about the founder, it's like they always have this like really inspirational origin story. Like it's the founder had a great vision for humanity, like Steve Jobs, you know, for helping the world. And uh, you know, he brought this company from like an idea in his mother's basement to like this worldwide brand. But meanwhile, the actual backstories of these companies can be very problematic and sometimes outright bizarre. Like in uh, the, the topic of this week's show, we're going to chat about the insane and very true origin story of Celestial Seasonings, America's number one tea manufacturer. I never knew about this. I think you, you were reading about it. You were researching topics. And you came across this one. And what a whacked out story. Yeah, I think uh, for everyone who isn't American, you will recognize the logo because that's how I knew it. The cute little bear. He's a cute little bear and he's falling asleep in front of the fire. He's got a little pot of tea. It looks like some scones, but it's not scones. It's probably Amer- It's probably biscuits in America. And, you know, he's just he's having a little a nod off. He's nodding off. He's probably got some heroin inside that teapot. Well, when we get, mainlining. well, when we get to the end of this, uh, this topic here, I don't know if it's going to sway people not to use this tea anymore. Because mm. a lot of people love this tea. It's a very popular brand. But I got to say, their origin story involves equal doses of extraterrestrial cults and eugenics. I would say more eugenics than anything <laughs> else. But still, it's bizarre. So I was thinking about this, Kane Rambo. I would say this podcast is the antithesis of eugenics. Why we're we're very pro life? Like what are you saying that we're so pro life that embryos are life and they should be given the right to vote when you're an embryo frozen? No, not exactly. What's going on here? <laughs> not sure where you're going with that. <laughs> but um, people who practice eugenics claim to want to improve the genetic quality of the human population. Yes, fuck. Whereas our aim, the aim of this podcast, is to degrade the quality of human existence. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the whole reason we do this show every week. <laughs> and I think that's more than evident to all the subscribers of the Sick and Wrong Patron. Yes, they're all degenerates. <laughs> Disgusting degenerates. That's what we embrace. We don't want to embrace the people, you know, the goody two-shoes out there that are trying to help people. No. No, not definitely not. The moral degenerates. And that's why... You know, all those moral degenerates and sexual deviants that look forward to listening to this fine educational podcast every Monday, all we ask is for you to sign up for the Patreon, sign up for Apple Podcasts, and do your part to support the show. It's only $5 a month. That's, that's not asking much if you think about it. And you don't, you know, you're not just making a donation here. You get access to uh, the Sick and Wrong second show. We do an extra show every week. And this week on second show, yeah, it's very action-packed, very it saucy. Is. Yeah. We get into all the details about uh, Kate's birthday week, including um, our trip to the California Central Coast. We stayed over at the Madonna Inn, as well as um, we closely observed, not really uh, uh, on our own volition here, but we closely observed an intense lovemaking session between two elephant seals. Uh, speaking of lovemaking between elephant seals, we also go into a deep discussion about how one actually does have sex inside of the, uh, the rock showers in the Madonna Inn. Yes. So we get into that, mm-hmm. <laughs> all that and more on the, uh, the Sick and Wrong second show. Five bucks a month, that's it. You get access to Sick and Wrong and Patreon as well as the official Sick and Wrong Discord. Or you subscribe uh, via Apple Podcasts. You don't even have to sign up for Patreon to uh, hear second show. I also got the archives on Apple Podcasts now for six years. So just do a search for Sick and Wrong Podcast and you can subscribe to the archives that way. Patreon.com slash Sick and Wrong. We do appreciate the support. So let me play this quick promo 
And then let's uh, let's chat about the dark origins of your beloved sleepy time tea. Hey, Sick and Wrong listeners, if you're not currently a Sick and Wrong patron, you might be missing out on special moments like this one. I prefer Jews because they're circumcised and usually lack hang-ups. We live in Sacramento, so Jews like hang-ups frequent, but that's what we would prefer anyway. This is not a cuckold situation. She and I like to suck cock together, and she likes to be DP'd and wobbly H'd. <laughs> <laughs> so Erisha got this email randomly on Facebook and was like, yeah, I'm thinking of going to Sacramento. For only $5 a month, you can enjoy these special moments. A bonus news story, extra phone calls, and an hour's worth of outtakes every week at patreon.com sickandwrong. Sign up today, support the show, and keep it sick and wrong. But don't you ever so today we're going to spill the tea in this episode, the proverbial tea. Thankfully, it's uh, the bland and disgusting dishwater <laughs> that is American tea. And I will stand on this soapbox. If you're a British person and you don't think like Yorkshire tea is the best tea in the world, we will fight. We will meet on a hilltop somewhere and fight. I gotta say, I agree with you. The tea I had in, uh, when I was in England is way better than any tea that you can get here. Because it's Yorkshire. That's why Yorkshire tea. Although I'm also from it. Rington's was the big one in Carlisle. People like Rington's a lot. Which is the one that we typically had. Where in, Plus you showed me how to do an English style with a little bit of milk. I actually do it Scottish style. I do mine chucked away, which is where you... Because this is what I don't understand. Where would you make a lovely hot beverage and then you put in cold milk? So you, you put the milk in first with the tea bag, however much milk you're going to use, although you, you should be aiming for a cup of tea that looks the same color as a cigarette butt, kind of caramel colored, right? Yeah, kind of that beige caramel. Beige caramel. So you put your milk in with your tea bag and then you pour the water. And by the way, this is also the way Nigella makes it. So if anyone wants to at me, fucking sexy Nigella makes it this way. And then you pour the water in, just let it steep for a bit and then it's, it's good to go. And it's all in the milk has been brought to temperature. And it's well caffeinated. That's why when I was, uh, uh, yeah, working remote in England, I would do coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon. Keeps you going. We need keeps to you get going. some. So Celestial Seasonings is the largest tea manufacturer in North America. It's based in Calder, uh, Boulder, Colorado, which I did not know. Uh, I just think of that as like South Park world. And it attracts more than 100,000 visitors a year on their tea tour. Can you imagine the grannies on the tea tour? It's a free tour too, right? Yeah. Yeah. They sell over 1.6 million cups. And each of them come with that very American inspirational message. And they rake in about 100 million a year. And they have that cute mascot. He's a cute, he's a bedtime bear. He's dressed in a bed shirt. He's falling asleep of front of a fireplace, bless him. Uh, but maybe by the end of this episode, you might want to punch him in the face. Or you could punch <laughs> him in the crotch because he's in. He's wearing a bed shirt and he's got a little red hat on. He is Donald Ducking. He's totally Donald yeah. Ducking. And I, I totally think he has heroin on his little table next to him. Maybe that's what makes the tea so popular. It is. Before becoming a super evil corporation that exploits the cuteness of tired bears in an effort to corrupt the minds of mindless Americans, it had humble origins in the heads of a few flower children hippies who were one day hiking the Rocky Mountains in search of the perfect herbs. Mo Siegel, which is the most Jewish name in the whole wide world, he was making a side hustle selling an Asian herbal tea blend to customers in a local shop 
And he was one of these like lofty leaf pickers back in 69. So, so wait, wait, was Mo like a Jewish hippie back then? Yeah, Mo Siegel. I'm was here it like, to pick some leaves. I'm trying to think, was it like Maury? Like Maury Siegel. Oh, I love the name Maury. I, I like it too. I, I kind of, I, this guy seems like a Maury Siegel. We can call him Maury, but I like the name Mo. No, Mo, Mo's great. Herbal tea was actually the new kid on this block because up until this point, all tea is harvested, still is, from a single plant. I'm going to butcher its name. I'm sorry to gardeners. Its proper name is Camellia sinensis. Yeah, there we'll go with that. Um, because herbal tea is not tea at all, it's the colloquial term. Technically, picking any bunch of leaves and throwing them into water is a brew. I'm a witch, so I know what a brew is. <laughs> Might not know a tea, but I know what a brew is. There's no doubt that the shekel bells did start ringing in Maury's ears and him and a few friends, they're going to cash in on this new tea trend. On a hike, they all harvested enough herbs to create 500 pounds of a blend that they called Moe's 36 Herb Tea. That's how you know he's the Jew. He's like, it's going to be named after me, right? We're going to name it after me. 36, no more, no less. And Mo put it that it wasn't long before they were walking into their local bank to get a business loan, wearing jeans, smelling of herbs, and armed with Tupperware containers of Mo's 36 and Sleepy Time blends. So Sleepy Time is one of the OG teas. So that was one of his initial yes. tea, tea, tea uh, brands, I guess. So I wonder if, like, did Mo and his crew ever get arrested for having what looked like marijuana? I bet they I mean, probably got into some scrapes. Things at Tupperware. I'm sure they they, they had one of those like uh, Vanagons. But as soon as like they opened it, I bet the coppers would have been like, "Yeah, on, on your way, lads, you hippies." <laughs> what, alongside one of the other co-founders, because there's quite a few co-founders, the flower name of Lucinda Seasings, they named their company Celestial Seasonings. This sounds like a perfectly American dream come true, but you know, so did Jonestown. It did. Yes. Hello, Jimmy. <laughs> They were certainly hippies, and it was certainly the summer of love. But uh, the name Celestial here has darker and way more maddening reasons. Mo and another co-founder called John Hay were just two believers in a New Age Bible called uh, the Urantia Book. Uh, the book has it all. It's got mind control, angels, aliens, eugenics, plots to eliminate inferior races, bears in bedshirts. Was the bear really. part of the Urantia book? No, but imagine okay. if it was. <laughs> so first published in 1955, the Urantia book is a 2,097-page tome. It's hailed by its advocates as the channeled wisdom of celestial beings, one infinite god, the great I am, and billions of lesser gods. It contains pronouncements in evolution, cosmology, physics, quantum mechanics, and it does include a little snippet of a biography of Jesus that claims that he toured Rome and Greece at the ages of 28 and 29. And it was here that he would become a student of Greek philosophy, mathematics and art. Now, I got to point out here that L. Ron Hubbard published uh, the book of Dianetics, 1950. Yeah. Which also contained a lot of these similar yeah, elements Very here. similar. There's going to be a lot of <laughs> shystering. Well, I'm just saying I think there's a lot of copying of each other, emulate you know, emulating each other, maybe homage. But I think this was, your rancher book was like a competing totally. ideology to Scientology. Yeah, similar as, to, as well. Yeah. So Urantia could have several meanings to its bonkers mem uh, members, like in its name. But one theory could be that Urantia, which means earth to them, when you remove the letter T in the word, it becomes uh, Urania. And she's one of the nine muses in Greek mythology. She's a goddess. So she's typically the muse of astronomy. 
So it's named quite well. It's a very 1920s name. You know, they were so into astronomy then. Other followers tried to claim that a man who was in an unconscious and hypnotic state wrote the book. But we do know one of the main authors and the man who might have been the one who went into the trances. But it is believed, like they've worked it out, that there was nine people playing a part in writing this very, very silly book. Because it's like, how many people does it take to screw in a light bulb? Nine idiots. Yeah, but the same could be said. We don't know how many people took part to write the Bible. How many people were the Book of Mormon? Too many. You know, (laughs) exactly. Too fucking many. The book was written and founded by two former Seventh-day Adventists, which is already alarm bells. We've got Chicago psychiatrist, yikes, William Sadler, and his brother-in-law, Wilfred Custer Kellogg. Love him, Custer. And he is indeed from that Kellogg family. His brother, Will uh, Keefe, was the one who founded the company. And fun fact, Conflicts, we all know this, was invented to help people stop wanking. That was the entire point to Conflicts. Sort of. Yeah, yeah. it is. Uh, In a nutshell. Well, I do think that's related to it. But so John Harvey Kellogg, who's the older brother, but he was a physician and devout Seventh-day Adventist nutcase. Um, You know, the the original company was in Battle Creek, Michigan. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can go you can go tour the facility still in Battle Creek. Have you been to Battle Creek? You know, I've never I've never I've driven through Battle Creek. I've never actually been to the Kellogg facility. But it would be something I'd like to do. It's a cool name, just naming your town Battle Creek. Well, Battle Creek's very close to Bad Axe, Michigan. Oh, even better. Which is also a very cool, cool. name There's for so Michigan many town. Cool names in Michigan, like Hell. Yeah, Hell yeah. is a great name for a town. Um, so John Harvey Kellogg edited Good Health, which is the uh, Adventist Church's magazine promoting their Adventist beliefs in healthy living, such as adopting a vegetarian diet, abstaining from alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. Mm-hmm getting lots of fresh air and exercise. Now, the doctor, Dr. Kellogg, had come to believe that sex, more or less, you know, mostly masturbation here, was detrimental to physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And he completely abstained from it. He'd never consummated his marriage and may have actually spent his honeymoon working on one of his anti-sex books. And he and his (laughs) wife kept separate bedrooms, John Harvey Kellogg. They adopted eight children and fostered another 34. Well, he's not pupping it. Can you imagine your honeymoon and you're there in like some, I don't know, Victorian lingerie. So you're probably showing a bit of ankle. He's like, I can't ever come to bed. Ever. Get off of me, woman. Calm down. I'm writing my anti-sex book. Yeah, you're a slattern. <laughs> you're a whore. But he was a staunch anti-masturbation advocate. He was really against masturbation. So this guy never got laid, nor did he ever masturbate. Like, could you imagine how... Like He's, awful this man would have been to, to be around. I'm just thinking about how big this, the size of this man's prostate. It must have been dragging on the ground. Well, also, like no wonder the brothers hate each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he cataloged 39 different symptoms that would affect chronic masturbators. You have all of these. Including general infirmity. You know, uh-huh. I am sick a lot. Defective development. Well, look at my mind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mood swings. Well, occasionally, you know. Fickleness. Yeah, I would say. Uh, bashfulness, boldness, yeah. bad yeah. posture, stiff joints, uh, fondness for <gasps> spicy foods. I love sriracha on everything. This is you. Acne, a couple times I might get spots, palpitations, and uh, epilepsy. Don't have epilepsy too often, but you never know. This is, I remember when Harrison did no, no November and he tried to say <laughs> that he had never been sharper of mind. Well, maybe it was just because he was off drugs like that, that was yeah, a couple was it, of weeks. Wait, was it no heroin November? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Kellogg would lecture to his patients, um, who were mostly parents, 
And he would say, look for signs of your teenager becoming sullen and grumpy and withdrawn. And his solution to this was a healthy diet, cornflakes, and a whole series, like a whole like procedure of treatments that would prevent people from masturbating. And some of these procedures were like medical and very barbaric. Like he would, he recommended parents to put carbolic acid on the penis or on the clitoris of a young woman. So it would actually burn their genitals. Why? That's horrible. Well, because you don't want to masturbate or do anything because, you know, your whole, you know, bottom portion of your body was on fire. And secondly, um, he recommended circumcision for older boys and adults to prevent this uh, because, you know, they would cause so much pain that they wouldn't even want to touch your genitals. So the, the idea is he wanted the person to get these procedures to experience pain so they would stop masturbating. Imagine being just so scared of your own sexuality that you're like, just dump acid on teenagers' genitals. I mean, this guy is worse than being like, you know, repressed. Yeah. I mean, this guy has got all sorts of like psychosexual issues here. (laughs) I must say, nowadays, I'm very much like um, a sandwich aficionado. Like, I know a good fucking sandwich. But I would say from my teen years till my mid-20s, I was cereal, which all my friends used to make fun of because it's like what manic depressives eat. But I would exist off cereal. But okay, but how often did you wank back then? Oh, tons. All the time. Well, so I guess it's not that effective. But (laughs) this is going to be my point about cereal. Conflicts is not the most amazing cereal by any fucking means. It's very bland and very boring. But every once in a while, you just want a bowl of cornflakes and it has to be ice cold milk. And some people put sugar on it, but I'm not a big fan of that. I just want a a very bland bowl of cornflakes with ice cold fucking milk. Lovely. And you've got to eat it really fast before it goes soggy. Do you think someone wanked in his cornflakes? And that's why he's so anti-masturbation. Yeah. <laughs> Someone played soggy like, biscuits. One of with his, his brothers made some soggy biscuits and he's like, fuck you. No one's going to masturbate on my watch. And so there are free Kellogg wanking brothers, all born into the Seventh-day Adventist church. And, you know, I have family members in the Seventh-day Adventist church, which I find really that's, weird. I mean, more or less a doomsday, uh, doomsday church. Yeah. yeah. All of them are going to leave the church when they're adults and go into other wacky religions, though. So Wilfred grew up. He falls in love with his first cousin. They share the same grandfather. And they have to actually leave their home in Battle Creek because it forbade first cousin marriage at the time. So say what you want about Michigan. They're like, no cousins can get married Wait, to Michigan or Seventh-day Adventist? No, Michi- Michigan. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't know that. So they moved to Illinois, where apparently it's fine at the time. <laughs> They moved there with Anna's sister, uh, Lena Celestia, and her husband, Dr. Wilfred Sadler. So it's funny that guys named Willie are going to start a religion. Two guys named Willie. No surprise, though. Mm. Wilfred was the son of a minister. Um, Sal- he was Sadler was a former minister himself, and both sisters had been raised in a very wacky church. The idea of being in a trance-like state, it comes up often in Sadler's other books, such as in his book, Modern Psychiatry. He often writes, he had also written a somewhat popular book in 1929 called, this is a man title, The Mind at Mischief, Tricks and Deceptions of the Subconscious and How to Cope with Them. And here he debunks a popular paranormal claim saying psychoanalysis, hypnotism, intensive comparison failed to show that the written or spoken messages of this individual had origin in his own mind. L. Ron Hubbard believed the same thing. I wonder why. Do you think they had sex? Sounds well, like I, it at this I just point. feel like this bookie rancher and particularly a Sadler guy bar- must have read really? Dianetics. Yeah. And he was like, God fucking damn it. Oh, this guy beat me to it. I'm just going to come up with a cooler name. 
Yeah, because um, what to audit by the scientific press of the Phoenix, uh, that came out by 52. So it beat Urantia. Yeah, by, by a few years. Yeah, and, yeah. and Dianetics, the book of Dianetics came out in 1950. So. Throughout the entire of the 1920s, both willies are part of a group that's going to become known as the Forum. The address is actually 533 W. Diversity Parkway, Chicago, Illinois. Do you know where it is? Diversity? Yeah, West Diversity Parkway. It's kind of near Wicker Park. I, li- I live kind of close to uh, Diversity. The building is still there. It's built hmm. in 1908. The entire estate was actually bequeathed to the Urantia Foundation in 1969. So today, still there, it consists of offices. You've got a basement for storage and like shipping operations and a forum room for meetings and study groups and two residential apartments. Can it be weird to live in that building? Fuck yeah. It'd be weird to be next door neighbors <sighs> with them. Yeah, I wonder if they wore like weird robes and shit like that. I think they just dress normally. But they do believe that there are aliens everywhere. I bet you they have a secret handshake. Got to. It was Sadler. It was kind of, the group is kind of full of like Sadler's friends, former nuthouse patients, colleagues, friends to the family. They're going to meet up weekly where someone will fall into a trance and they're going to answer questions which would apparently arrive from <laughs> celestial beings. That's credible. The words were in a language called Uversa, which had to be translated into Salvington and then into Satania before it could be translated into English and communicated to a human being. But somehow the Bible makes sense, you know. Well, it's kind of like, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, from the Book of Mormon, he had to get those special glasses. Oh, him. Yeah, that yeah. dude uh, with and, the, the wig. Yeah, I'm blanking on his name right now. Jo- wait, Joseph. Quaker? Uh, no, blanking on the name. Joseph Smith? Yeah, Joseph yeah. Smith had to like claim that he had to have the special angel sunglasses to be able to read the text. And so he's like, you know, I got the angel sunglasses, put on the, the, the you know, got the text, read through the angel books, and now I'm able to translate it. And they're like, okay, can we try the angel sunglasses? No, no, they're gone. The angels took them back. Literally the only <laughs> dude that I believe ever saw angels and saw them beautifully was fucking William Blake on Hampstead Heath. He is the only person who I will allow to see angels in my life. As the story grow, goes that the forum group continued to develop its questions and often they would co- the answers would come in the form of fully written papers. And this is going to be the first collected Urantia book. The closed group of about 30 people agreed not to share the papers with anyone else. And eventually the group's going to grow to 486 people. And the core of the book is produced from 1925 to 1935 in exactly the same way. Like somebody falls into a trance and then they like translate it. Well, that's interesting. So they were like putting this book together back then. So that was before uh, Dianetics. Yeah, but there's nothing to say that that is what became the inventional book. Oh, okay. I tried very hard to find out the answers to that. But even though Urantia is still around to this day and there are people in the Urantia who say that it's not a cult, even though it's clearly a cult, you cannot find the simplest of answers to things because they're obviously a cult and they like to run rings. After the very last part, the third part was received and there were small revisions made. Sadler's son, Willie, who's also known as Bill, he wrote a draft introduction, but he's denied this. And then luckily for them, the real introduction was received. The group stopped meeting in 1942 and the Urantia Foundation was formed in 1950 as a tax-exempt educational society in Illinois. And the book's going to be published on October the 12th, 1955. Hmm. Later on, huge parts of this book are going to be revealed to be plagiarized. <laughs> Big surprise there. 
Much unlike this podcast, though, where we say thanks to our sources. So I just want to give a thanks to writers uh, Chrissy Stockton, Megan Giller, and often Marta Gardner, as well as the daft Urantia website itself. Thank you. So the first free part of this very heavily dense, and it does take a dense head to read it. It's very much like the Bible. I got tired reading it, and I went through like all three parts. It describes a complicated universe with invisible um, seraphim and spirits and semi-spirit beings of all sorts. And the last part tells the story of Jesus's entire life in detail, all 36 years. This book has been translated actually into 20 languages now, including Arabic, Chinese, Croatian, and Portuguese. I love the fact that they pointed out it's in Croatian. It's like, we're here for our former Soviet Union members. Yeah, that's kind of odd. There's actually a famous operatic play based on it, and there's at least four fantasy novels. But I bet this book is a lot of inspiration for a lot of people's fantasy novels. Well, I mean, that's what uh, L. Ron Hubbard did, too, you know, before he was... Dianetics founder. I mean, he was like a science fiction author. Exactly. It's so similar. And there are many crazy and insane ideas in this book. It's kind of hard to like pick and choose them. But in the 20 most asked questions about the religion, although we know it's a cult, Mo said that Lucifer, Satan, Mielzadek, Adam and Eve, and Jesus are all extraterrestrial beings who have visited Earth. In fact, Adam and Eve were brought to Earth to upstep the human race. Hmm. All right, so there are mm-hmm. aliens that uh, that that Jesus was like, okay, let's let's just all go to to. Well, I don't know if Jesus really did. I guess it would be God. There's, so there's hundreds the Adam of Jesuses, hundreds okay. of gods. And so uh, they're like, let's just put the Adam and Eve aliens on there to uh, make the human race. Well, no, there's succeed. already there's already humans, but Adam and Eve are the perfect humans. Well, that's the thing. I think they're just making them better. Yeah, betterment of mankind. So everyone who's listening to this podcast, everyone here right now, we are on the world Urantia. It's the number 606, but there have been many, many sons of God like Jesus on many different planets because there are a billion worlds. And when evolution is complete, each of these worlds will have 100,000 local universes with 10 million inhabited planets within them. And when we die... We're reincarnated from planet to planet. And then we finally go to paradise where the deity lives. And there is a little piece of the deity in each of us called a thought adjuster. A thought adjuster. Which is so Scientology. Yeah. This that is, is a well, complete Scientology. Well, it's interesting. It's not only Scientology because they, they feel some, they have a very similar like afterlife, but also the Mormon endowment ceremony oh. is explicitly about attaining the powers and status of a deity. So in that sense, Mormons believe that they will become gods after they die. So it's stated in the endowment ceremony that celestial wives will bear each Mormon male spirit children, which is the same way the Mormon God created human spirits in the preexistence. So in that sense, Mormons believe that they'll become some kind of deity with dominion over their spirit children. But they do, they say that getting your own, because everyone's like, oh, when Mormons die, they get their own planet. That's a bit of a misnomer um, than doctrine, but early, I guess, interpretations of Mormonism did say you'll get your own planet with your own spirit wives and a bunch of spirit children on your planet. You kind of don't want your own planet, though. I think it would be boring. You want a planet with at least, like, I don't know, a couple more families knocking around, don't you? Why? I'd get a planet with a bunch of sluts? Like I'm down. Yeah, but D, they're all your wives, so you have to put up with the moaning. No, they're not I'll, sluts, they're wives. They get, there's like the period shack is in the back. 
What if that all... And then I get to like spin a wheel and choose which one I want. What if they're all on the same cycle and they're just like, you know, I'm just not in the mood. I have a headache and I want some chocolate. And there's no chocolate here because there's no shops. Like, That's you know... my spirit children get that from me. I just kind of hang out, smoke weed, play video games, watch movies. Every now and then shag one of my spirit wives. <laughs> not bad. Are you becoming a Mormon now? I'm thinking about it. <laughs> it sounds good. <laughs> Urantia is a planet group. In a, in a planetary group named uh, Satania. So the HQ is being run by the evil <laughs> Jews in space in a town called Jerusalem. Well, I don't know if you were aware of this, but in that town, we have factories. That's where we build our lasers. I've kind of gathered it. Yeah. I skimmed through a lot of this Bible. I read a lot of this uh, in like one day. If I can read it in one day, then all of you. So in, in passages, all of you can. In passages 41, 22.2 through to 41.2.3, it reads as, The astronomic center of Satania is an enormous dark island of space, which, with its attendant spears, is situated not far from the headquarters of the system government, except for the presence of the assigned power center. The supervision of the entire physics engine system of Satania is centered on Jerusalem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. They're just saying that, you know, our number one main factory is centered on Jerusalem. It's like our Death Star, Jerusalem. That's where it is. Well, where else are you going to get your space lasers? At the end of this batshit chapter, it goes like this. And this is passages 41.10.5 and 41.10.6. Urantia is comparatively isolated on the outskirts of Santania, your solar system, with one exception, being the farthest removed from Jerusalem, while Satania itself is next to the outermost system of Nordalidiac. And this constellation is now transversing the outer fringe of Nebadon. You were truly among the least of all the creation until Michael's bestowal elevated your planet to a position of honor and great universe interest. Sometimes the last is first, while truly the least becomes greatest. Presented by an archangel in collaboration with the chief of Nebadon power centers. Yeah, th- this Goodbye. is all a bunch of just nonsense words. Like, I, I can and- understand it's the 60s. You're all stoned. You know, you're all maybe tripping on acid. You'd be like, whoa, man, that rug really did pull the room together. But th- I just have no patience for this. No, I mean, it's just nonsense. Not to mention they heavily borrow from other religious texts. It's Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Satania, Satanic. Is, I know, but I mean, it's, it's like they're, they're just adding in a few, peppering it with a few other, you know, scientific pseudoscience terms and, and sci-fi names. And they're like, yeah, we just made a religion. But I guess that's kind of how religions are. That's yeah. how they're all formed. And I do want to point out here, like I read through this whole book at a vast speed, <laughs> that this is some of the easiest stuff to understand. And it was also very easily debunked by science at the time yeah, no of shit. the book's publishing, <laughs> which is crazy to me because of, when you think about like the advancements in technology and science from the 1920s to the 1950s, it was like another industrial revolution. It's crazy. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, how many scientists were actually part of this Urantia cult? A lot. It's like there, a lot of scientists are actually part of the beginnings. So they have some of the vast descriptions of the solar system. They're instantly junked by the science crowd who, by the 1940s, they favored a nebula hypothesis for the solar system. I cannot cliff note this. You <laughs> don't make me. Just Google it. It is easy to read on Wikipedia. The book does not support the Big Bang Theory, but what religious book does? I don't think any of them do. Yeah, I think they all kind of tie it in. Yeah. 
There's other stuff about the way that Mercury spins. They say that birds are magnetic, species evolving from single cell mutations. And, uh, you know, we're actually really close neighbors with the Andromeda galaxy. All of, it, all of this is super popular in the 1920s, much like spiritual mediums and going into trances. But by the 40s, as the world's going into war, frivolous things kind of put to one side. So it's like largely like debunked, forgotten about. And they like cover it up too. I can imagine. I mean, it's like now we got more serious things to uh, focus on. Yeah. You know, and so we're just going to we're just going to practice the religions that have been around for a few hundred years. Followers pick either one of the other arguments. So either the science was wrong at the time, but that does not mean that the moral message of the book is wrong. Or this is the better argument. The science simply hasn't happened yet. Come on. You know, the cognitive dissonance for all religions is just shocking. But this one in particular, (laughs) it's just laughable. But one of the sciences in the book that the followers probably believe in, and Sadler certainly did, was eugenics. Which was popular at the time. Super popular. I was telling you that there's a bit in Red Dead Redemption 2 when you're riding into like a super big western town and there's a guy on a corner and he's like got all these eugenics pamphlets and and he gives you them and you can sit and read it. My mate Anthony just fucking shot him. (laughs) I let him live. But Anthony was like, I've got no room for this in my game sphere. Sadler's interested in race eugenics. So it's a field of study that seeks to remove inferior kinds of people from the gene pool one of his favorite books before uh, the urantia book was madison grant's the passing of the great race which says that nordic people are the ideal human race uh sounds like someone else we know and getting rid of other races would enable us to get rid of the undesirables who crowd our jails hospitals and insane asylums Racial hygiene theories like this are obviously going to go on to like have a huge rise in popularity at the time. This is going to culminate in obviously the Nazi party in Germany. And then, you know, a little little sprinkling of a Holocaust. Yeah, Adolf was definitely very influenced by this book. Fuck yeah. So in The Passing of the Great Race, Grant proposed this rigid system of selection through the elimination of the people who are weak or unfit, who they deem weak or unfit. Social failures, as they were called. And this would solve the whole question in about 100 years, so just one century, because that would enable us to get rid of the undesirables. So the individual, these undesirables, could be nourished, educated, protected by the community during their lifetime, but they must be sterilized so that their line stops with him. Can I, I want to point out here that Hitler got the entire idea of sterilization from America. Well, probably from this book. Well, America at this time, in your um, sanatoriums, yeah. with disabled people, all the downies, were all being sterilized. And Hitler was like, that is such a popular a practice good, at the time. Yeah, he was like, that's such a good idea. I'm going to take that. Well, because they felt that, you know, if they didn't do this, future generations are going to be cursed. You're going to keep perpetuating these undesirable genes. So... This, they feel this is a practical and merciful as well as an inevitable solution of this problem. And it can be applied to an ever-widening circle of social discards. I'm now, a social discard. <laughs> well, I think people of uh, you people know, my, who listen to this. <laughs> my ethnic background <laughs> might say I'm a social discard. Uh, but it begins with the criminal, the disease, the insane, and then extend, extends gradually to other types of social discards they may become weaklings rather than defectives or worthless race types oh, or maybe worthless religions. It just <laughs> depends on, on, on you know, who's calling the shots here. Now, Grant, 
advocated restricted immigration to the U.S. through limited immigration from East Asia and Southern Europe. He also advocated efforts to purify the American population through selective breeding. Is he like a senator, like a Republican senator? Because he could be. He sounds a bit like little Vogue as well. Well, I don't know, but I mean, this sounds like the Republican Party right now. Yeah. You know, limiting uh, immigration from the South. But, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure some of his ideas at C. If he did a speech right now at CPAC, I think a lot of people would be uh, applauding. Yeah. Um, he served as the vice president of the Immigration Restriction League from 1922 to his death in 1937. He also passed um, several anti-miscegenation laws, uh, notably the Racial Integrity Act in, of 1924 in the state of Virginia. But by 1937... His, uh, his fine tome, The Passing of the Great Race, um, had sold 17,000 copies in the U.S., and the book had received many positive reviews in the 1920s. Uh, but his popularity started decline, declining in the 1930s. Among those who embraced the book, and the central message here, was Adolf Hitler. And so I think a lot of, that didn't sit well with a lot of Americans. So even though the book had sold, you know, it was kind of popular in the 20s, by the time the you know the Nazis rose to power, World War II was happening. They're like, yeah, I don't know if I really want to read this book or be associated with Adolf Hitler. But Adolf Hitler wrote to Grant to personally thank him for writing the book, and he referred to the book as my Bible. Yeah, you know, I bet there was so many, <laughs> so many idiots in the nineteen thirties who were like, this generation has become so woke. I just want the the eugenics back. This is kind of back. I mean, this is the same thing. The passing of the great race uh, focuses on the race suicide, and so I think a lot of there's a lot of QAnon people, a lot of Republicans that that subscribe to the white genocide conspiracy theory. Yeah, that there's a genocide of the white race, and that's kind of what this book appeals to. So white supremacists still quote from it to this day. I mean, they're not the smartest of like knives. Definitely not. But I mean, it's just. It's just shocking to think that a founder of religion who subscribed to these type of theories, you know, actually had a following. Yeah. So in the Urantia book, um, a bunch of angels state that around uh, 500,000 years ago, six colored races arrived on Urantia, which is Earth. So they were red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and indigo. So red is the purest and uh, indigo is the most diluted. So this is all laid out in, in paper 51. It says, these secondary races are the peoples that are missing on certain worlds. They are the ones that have been exterminated on many others. It is a much fortune on your rancher that you so largely lost your superior blue men, except as they persist in your algamated white race. The loss of your orange and green stocks is not of such concern. The more backwards humans are usually employed as laborers by the more progressive races. It would not prove beneficial for the higher strains of Urantia mortals to mate with the lower races. Such as unwise procedure would jeopardize all civilization on your world. The inferior and the unfit are largely eliminated. It seems that you ought to be able to agree upon the biologic disfellowshipping of your marked, markedly unfit, defective, degenerate, and antisocial stocks. I really like this space voice that you're using. <laughs> is this like from Star Trek? Like, where, no. where are you? What are you channeling? You know here? what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking <laughs> of the woman in Flash, um, Flash Gordon. You know, who's like his little, like the oh, old lady. That vo- yeah, yeah. Who's um, kind of a voiceover at times? No, she's Wasn't like she? she's like the little old lady. 
And she's like, she's wearing a black and like a, a gold helmet and a black fang. And she's I very that angry. She was like, had a disembodied voice at times. No, she's like a little. I'm thinking of something else. She kind of looks like Ruth Garden, but it's not Ruth Garden. That's who I'm picturing in my mind, who I'm trying to be. <laughs> well, it's, it's really not... working to like put me in, you know, set the scene here. Like, even with the mistakes, it works for me. This process happens on every planet when Adam and Eve appear, but on Urantia, uh, it did not go according to plan. Adam and Eve messed up somewhere. So having failed to achieve race harmonization by the Adamic technique, part two begins. The local universe section of the book where it tells us you must now work out your planetary problem of race improvement <laughs> by other and largely human methods of adaptation and control. This is a book about eugenics. It's a religion about eugenics. By paper 70, it's stating biological renovation of the racial stocks, the selective elimination of inferior human strains tend to eradicate many mortal inequalities. So compare that to the world's most boring book, Mein Kampf, where Hitler writes, the demand that defective people be prevented from propagating <laughs> equally defective offspring represents the most human act of mankind. You know, I knew Hitler didn't make that up. He got totally plagiarized. <laughs> Sadler wasn't Hitler, but he's obviously a huge fan of eugenics. Under the tutorage of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, yes, the man who invented the conflict, so we wouldn't wank, and who was also a huge fan of eugenics, Sadler was one of the most well-known psychiatrists of his era. He was working at the very famous Battle Creek Sanatorium, uh, which still exists to this, the building Yeah, no, the building still yeah. exists, but I don't, it's obviously not in operation. No. Famous guests of this sanatorium included Thomas A. Edison. Uh, the A stands for Alva. Never forget, I love the name Alva. Amelia Earhart, Clyde Barrow's personal favorite, and another anti-Semite, Henry Ford. <laughs> and the lesser known now, but was very famous in his day, Irving Fisher, who actually helped set up the Race Betterment Foundation with Kellogg, a.k.a. Eugenics. So the goal of the foundation were to call attention to the dangers which threaten the race. So if it's not white to these very, very white men, although ironically Fisher can be a very but Jewish name. It can be Jewish, but it also can be a Gentile name. Yeah, then it's not German. right. White, white is right for them. So as I mentioned before, eugenics actually was very popular at the time, a popular theory that a lot of Americans, particularly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Americans, mm -hmm. but a lot of them at the turn of the last century were obsessed with it. And they're obsessed with the purity of the white race. So eugenics was a pseudoscience. And this pre-genetics were like, they thought that there are certain traits, personality traits, behavioral traits, would be passed down in a manner similar to blue eyes, brown eyes, which is just, that's completely debunked and not true. And, and we know it's bullshit today. But a lot of people like John Harvey Kellogg, Teddy Roosevelt, Teddy. and many famous scientists at universities totally believed it and bought into it. And, it, and they use this pseudoscience to feed their racist beliefs. But it was also an era when there were like a lot of immigrants coming to the U.S. Yeah. I mean, they're, and, you know, they're extremely foreign to these people who are already living there. So like you had Eastern European Jews, you had Irish people, you had Southern Italians, you had people from the Balkans and Greece coming here. And so many white Americans felt that these people would never be considered American. They would never assimilate into you know, mainstream America and they would pollute you know, our pure white genes. It's like so the American ridiculous. Gene pool. 
because these people are immigrants. Like some of my family were like some of the first people to like fucking rock on over. It's like you guys yeah, but are all you were white immigrants. Like there's immigrants from like you no, know, we're all mutts. Scandinavia, but I'm talking immigrants from Greece, immigrants from the Middle East. But this is what's ridiculous about being white, though, is like whites are mutts. We're like an we're an amalgamation of fucking everything. Like there is no such thing as a pure white bloodline because it doesn't exist. We're the biggest mongrels of everyone. Well, I think some of them felt that there is more white than others, you know, right, in terms okay. of percentages. The nods. Yeah. So this was all going on in like top universities. And so John Kellogg got into it quite early and he espoused more than eugenics, something that was called euthenics. Um, which, like, if you live a good, healthy life and you do various things that he prescribed, like eating cornflakes, you could rid yourself of negative traits, like being cheap or being shifty (laughs) (laughs) or being a criminal. And then that's what you pass on to your children. Eat your cornflakes, kids. It's a really good marketing (laughs) tool. Think about it, though, where if you invent something that's very bland, not the greatest thing that you're going to wake up and want to eat every day. But if you say to your child this is going to make you a better person, then every parent in America is going to buy that. Well, why do they buy into Christianity? Or any religion, for that matter? Yeah, I'm just saying that it's a great marketing tool for conflicts in general. But very few eugenicists believed in euthenics, and they would all ridicule John Harvey Kellogg behind his back. Chitty reckon over conflicts, John. But they always took his phone calls, because he had a great deal of money, (laughs) mainly from his cornflake, you know, dividends there so he funded a foundation for race betterment and he founded three huge national conferences on race betterment two were in battle creek and one was at the uh, san francisco world fair in 1915 where hundreds of stars you know were there to talk about eugenics even booker t washington which is odd i i only know booker t the wrestler uh who's booker t washington he was like a famous uh i think he was like a famous um writer at the time and and educator. Uh, But he arrived to lecture and have a symposium on eugenics and euthenics. So it was a negative aspect of John Harvey Kellogg's life, you know, because the man did do some great things, but at the same time, he did have some pretty whacked ideologies like euthenics, as well as like his, his attitude towards sex and sexuality. So all this is coming from, I read a, uh, a piece by Dr. Howard Markle, who wrote a book called The Kelloggs, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek. I was going to say, while I was reading about it, like I could, we could have done a whole show about the fucking Kelloggs brothers. All three of them claimed that they had invented conflicts, and all three of them ha- bitterly divided until the day all of them died, much like the, uh, the Adidas brothers. they're very interesting the thing about Booker Washington just a notable thing about him I would like to know he was African American but yeah but he's a scholar so I can see him wanting to go to see what all these like white pricks were saying about why but there was also like you know but I mean like people like Marcus Garvey yeah I was about to say yeah Marcus Garvey believed in racial purity but you know for black people yeah so I don't know if Booker T. Washington you know was, was in that camp but I mean he must have had you know, a, a thought or, you know, sentiments on eugenics. He was going there for crack. He just wanted to know what the crack was of it. 
Sadler's going to pu- publish free books and punish them all about his favorite subjects, eugenics. So there's long heads and round heads or what's the matter with Germany? That's its subtitle. That's 1918. Racial decadence, an examination of the causes of racial uh, degeneration in the United States, 1922. And the truth about hereditary, 1927. Uh, the Urantia book echoes the ideas presented in these books. And in some cases, it just reproduces the text word for word. In Racial Decadence, he expresses, amongst other things, that the unfit should be sterilized, that morality is hereditary, and that some races are more moral than others. Hmm, I wonder which one. (laughs) In The Truth About Hereditary, he writes that marriage between races is to be deplored when one of the races would be as inferior as compared with the other, which happens to be the biological fact as concerns the white and the negro races in this country. Wait, so the white and the uh, purple and the red and the yellow, they they all can't intermix? No, no. Uh, reading like two books, two shows recently about books with the word negro and negro in the title. Like it's just, it's just happened. We've fallen on our sword. It's how it goes. Oh, you know, it's of the time. Yeah. Remember his lovely wife, Lena. Lena. Well, she wasn't so lovely after all. She delivered a speech she had written to the Illinois Federation of Women's Clubs in 1932 titled, Is the Abnormal to Become Normal? And she also published a collection of racist essays called A Decade of Progress in uh, Eugenists, which include Charles Davenport, who was part of founding the Race Betterment Foundation. So it's just a cesspool of people with just horrible, terrible and like horrific ideas. Well, it's nice that he found a counterpart that believed in these awful (laughs) theories. I bet they had hot sex, hot white missionary sex. The overall meaning is calls for a mandatory sterilization law and says that if we do not practice good eugenics, ultimately this monster will grow to such hideous proportions that it will strike us down. If we practice eugenics correctly, she continues, we'll eliminate at least 90% of crime, insanity, feeble-mindedness, moronism, and abnormal sexuality, not to mention many other forms of defectiveness and degeneracy. Thus, within a century, our asylums, prisons, and state hospitals would be largely emptied of their present victims of human woe and misery because white people never commit any type of crime. Can you repeat this in German? <laughs> With your she arm was American, I know, I know, but... but yeah. <laughs> so you would think that these very obviously racist and terrible ideas would age out by the time of the hippies and their free love, their bare feet, their socialist ideals, peace to all mankind bullshit when they're hit in the streets. Well, not for Mr. Maury Mo Siegel. He wrote of the the Urantia book in a, you've got to read this book. 55 people tell the story of the book that changed their life. Wow, what a claim. <laughs> he says, after I read it, I was not concerned about who had written it or how it had been written because it was so powerful. Like, what, what kind of fucking blinkers have you got on Mo? Jesus. Mo is now the current president of the Urantia Foundation. He holds a weekly study group at his house and he discovered the book in 1969, the same year he starts hiking up the Rockies for herbs. In fact, the text was a major reason that he decided to find and name it Celestial Seasonings. I wonder what Dirty Hippie like was like, dude, I'm reading this book, man. You gotta borrow it. It's fucking great, man. <laughs> it's like all these red people. Little did he know people. what would happen. There's a rug that ties it all together. Mo said, after studying the teachers in the Urantia book, I knew that it would f- feel selfish and wasteful to simply focus on material success. 
So as a young man, when I began thinking of what I could do to make a living, I immediately turned to the health food industry. The ideas in the book were the inspiration for the uplifting quotes that we print on the side of our tea boxes and on our tea bag tags. Well, I mean, that's kind of right place, right time, because a lot of people there, not only were they, you know, following just weird cults and bizarre religions, they're, you know, susceptible to it. It was also like, you know, the era of the health food, the health food era. It's like it was right. making that comeback with like, you know, the source, Father Yo, and all those like betterment restaurants and vegetarianism. And, and so it was good timing for this guy. But you got to think, so like the tags on the side of the box, right? Like the the very American things. We don't have that in Britain where it's got like a little inspirational quote. So I'm surprised that they don't say things like add milk to make it white. <laughs> you will not replace us. Yeah. <laughs> the South shall rise again. Oh, this is a favorite one. Blut und Boden. That's a thing that white supremacists say. It means blood and soil. White lives matter. Yeah. Be on the side. Yeah, I'm surprised they don't have it in like some kind of brush script. Jews will not replace us. By the way, enjoy your tea. Yeah. Or I think they should just go with my favorite. Look away, <laughs> look away, Dixieland. Which Elvis gets a free pass for singing Dixieland. I think he's just nodding, giving a nod to the uh, he's his, a southern, his southern fans. He's allowed to do it. In the 20 most asked questions about the book, he's careful to say that. All persons are equal in the sight of God and that race should become irrelevant, but there's no getting around it, Mo. You're fucking racist. Come on, quit backpedaling, Mo. <laughs> so he writes in the 20 most asked questions on the fellowship website, illness and disease result from evil and cause suffering. Unfortunately, several factors hinder progress towards the development of a disease-free world. I wonder what they are, Mo. He said the laws of genetics are immutable and form the physical cornerstone of evolution. At the present time, mankind loses about as much progress as it makes by ignoring eugenics. This is what he, this is the modern world, Mo. And this is 19, what, 69, 1970 at this point. This is in 1920s. Oh, no, this is recent. This is yeah. on the 20 most questions. So he's got this for the world to see now. You can view that now, 2024. Okay, but- so that's what I'm saying. It's like, so he, yeah, this is something he wrote recently. It's on the website, so he's still standing behind it. doesn't matter if he wrote it 20 years ago or like five minutes ago. It's on the website. He stands behind it. As of 2002, he did retire from Celestial Seasonings. And his other Urantia believer and co-founder, John Hay, he's pushed out in 1985. And he goes on to be the CEO of like a bunch of other things and like technology companies. I couldn't find out if he was still in the religion, but... Oh, if Mo was still a practitioner? No, like John a practitioner? Hay. John Hay. Okay, John Hay, the other co- guy. Co- uh, co-founder. Since 2000, though, the company has been part of Haynes Celestial Group. And this is a massive, multi-billion dollar corporation. And, you know, it includes like a lot of European and American brands. So some of the American brands, I don't know, but there's like Arrowhead Mills, uh, Maranatha, Spectrum Nationals, Linda McCartney, Sunpat Peanut Butter, New Covent Garden Soup, and uh, Command, and then Jason. I don't know what Yeah, Jason I don't know is. all of those. But, you know, Linda McCartney, didn't she do a whole line of vegetarian products? Yeah, she like does. Amy's? Very British. Yeah. And like the new Covent Garden soup. That's like a soup in Britain I would always get. It's like a little fresh soup. You've had it when we've been in Britain together. So Celestial pretty much invented an entire category that we now all take for granted. And this is what you were saying before. It's natural health foods. And they do it very well. 
How Good, which rates packaged food products, uh, said that Celestial's products receive a great ratings, which means that in terms of social environmental impact, uh, the company is 85% better than any other food produced in the United States. Oh, well, I mean, it's health food. I, could, I can imagine that. Like, think of all the heavily processed food in the U.S. This company has a $1.8 billion revenue, and like mega-billion corporations, it is not without its controversies. Some of these include that Hain has been cooking their own books, they've not been paying dividends, the company routinely sells itself to pay its own debt, which is shady at best, but we all know that companies do this, come on, don't we? In 2018, the Securities and Exchange Commission filed a complaint in federal court in Brooklyn, New York, that alleges for that from at least 1998 to 2002, Hain had fraudulently backdated stock options granted to company officers, directors, employees, and they were concealing millions of dollars in expenses from the company's shareholders, which is a little bit bigger than being fucking shit. Yeah, I was about to say, what an upstanding company doing well, just bettering, you know, the betterment of society here. Despite the good reputation of its products for being organic and highly healthy, the company has been the protagonist of a controversy that hurt consumer confidence since around 2013. Every year, there's like a little lawsuit against them. 2013, they're sued. They're accused of falsely labeling its brand as organic. 2015, it was forced to pay consumers in compensation for false labeling as some of the brands failed to meet the minimum requirements to be considered as organic. Celestial was also accused of falsely labeling products, including Sleepy Time Tea, as being all natural, even though they allegedly contained pesticides. Uh, I'm going to butcher this word because I've never heard it before. Propocolor, which is uh, in Sleepy Time Kids Goodnight Grape Tea, is a bad actor chemical, meaning that it's toxic, carcinogenic, or it produces known reproductive or developmental toxicants. Good luck to the kids there. (laughs) And that's what you're feeding your children. In February of 2023, they were found to be in violation of FDA regulations regarding mislabeling of children's food. And an ongoing lawsuit is still in the work. Like people, these people just aren't letting them lie. Well, I mean, a lot of companies tend to have lawsuits. I mean, class action suits. There's lawyers out there that will prosecute anything. However, these are rather egregious. I mean, it's like, come on, you're labeling your stuff as organic. Labeling labeling is all natural, yet you contain pesticides that can that's a carcinogenic. They can cause like reproductive issues in in a kid's tea as well. It's not just an adult's tea. No, I mean that's that's not good. Yeah, it's a tea labeled for children, which is pretty egregious in my book. Perhaps the most famous, this is a class suit in a New York federal court, and this is how I discovered the story. And it alleges that it misled parents into believing that its premium baby foods are healthy, nutritious, and non-toxic when they actually contain undiagnosed, dangerous levels of lead and other toxic heavy metals. Obviously, consuming these toxic metals in baby foods may have caused thousands of children to develop autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders. This is known as the baby food autism lawsuit. So the charges did get thrown out of court, but the plaintiffs are still building and fighting a case and every year it just gets bigger. They're just getting a binder full of evidence ready to take this company fucking down. Yeah, but this is kind of difficult to prove. I mean, you're going to have to tie in right. whatever, yeah, whatever, you know, lead. And what, I mean, this is just lead specifically from that tea. 
is the no, precursor this is the to baby autism foods. or the baby food. Yeah. Like whatever lead that's in that baby food is the direct cause of the autism as opposed to all the other societal factors and what's in their house. And exactly. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different, a lot of variables here. This is difficult to prove, but hey, with mounting evidence. I think the fact that there's not just one family, there's a whole fucking lot of families who are going for it. I think like, you know, it, well, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting not without precedent. Me. I mean, look yeah. at the other, uh, you know, uh, toxic items and carcinogens that are in their other products. So hello, Mo. He left Celestial Seasonings, you know, 20 odd years ago. The tea is still very much linked to a pseudoscience religion. So the best that one can hope for is that your nightly little cup of your little sleepy time tea, it comes with an inspirational tea tag that was derived from a really racist eugenic book that was apparently written by aliens. So I think all in all, we're not telling you to stop drinking celestial seasonings tea at night. Like you can continue to do that. But when you are drinking that cup, just ruminate on what we discussed here. You know, that, 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 that this company was founded by eugenicists, racists, and people who were batshit crazy that believed in aliens. Yeah, the little taggles and they start reading, white is right, white is right. <laughs> so j- just, just, just be aware of that. While you're drinking your tea. People, it's episode 934 here, Sick and Wrong. Got a couple phone calls to get to. 323-522-4032 is that number. Uh, but first, let's play this quick message from Adam and Eve. It's Butt Plug Month on AdamandEve.com. Show that you still care by bringing something new into the bedroom. And by something new, I mean a butt plug. Because if you order right now and use coupon code DIDDLE, you get 50% off your first item, a gift so sensual I can't even tell you about it on this podcast that talks about murder and bukkake, and on top of all of that, free shipping. Support Sick and Wrong by supporting our sponsor, adamandeve.com, and making a purchase with coupon code DIDDLE. That's D-I-D-D-L-E. So we got a couple phone calls here to get to. Uh, people, you can call the Sick and Wrong hotline at 323-522-4032, or just email us at uh, Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, send us an MP3. So this first call we have here is from a listener who is incensed, outraged about the Valentine's Day show last week. Oh, I love it. I love passionate people. What up, Dean Kate? So I was listening to the Valentine's Day podcast, and I had to stop the podcast because I am incensed. <laughs> I am outraged that you would ever, ever think that you guys were not my main bitch, because you are my main fucking bitch. Like, all the other podcasts, they're my side hoes. Do I tell people about it second wrong? Probably not. You're right there. Okay, my See, point. There you go. My point exactly. <laughs> you're ashamed. You would never tell anybody about this show because you're ashamed. We but all have that. It's a secret pleasure. Yeah, we've all had that one boyfriend, though, that we're like, I'm never going to introduce you to anyone I actually know. And if anyone says, did we ever have sex, I shall deny. Shall Wait, deny are you it. talking about that guy with Down syndrome you dated before me? You mean you? <laughs> you? No, he had a brain tumor, <laughs> oh, not a okay, brain okay. problem. He just had oh, a tumor. I, I thought he was developmentally disabled. Well, he was also Scottish, so yes. All right, possibly. <laughs> But this is my main podcast, or my main bitch, and I even subscribed to whatever, the second show. Um, Okay, all right. Well, in that case, I take it back. We are your main bitch. If you're subscribing to the second show, we're your main bitch podcast. Definitely. But to demonstrate 
how much you guys are within me. I did want to tell you about this crazy dream I had. Uh, and perhaps, Kate, you can interpret this dream and tell me what this means. So recently I had a dream, more of a nightmare, if you will, that Harrison was still alive, and I was at Harrison's family's house. I know it sounds weird. Um, his parents died, and at this, like, funeral slash wake, um, Harrison was taking up the bodies and barbecuing them, and we were eating the bodies of his parents. So what the fuck does that mean? Does that mean I'm listening to Second Wrong too much? Yes. Too many discussions about uh, cannibalism? Does that mean Harrison has crossed over and <laughs> is visiting me Yes. as a ghost in my dreams? I don't know. It's a weird fucking dream. Um, so, yeah, curious to hear your interpretation of me eating Harrison's parents that he basically fed to me. It's fucking gross. But you you guys are my main bitch. I'm mad you would ever think you were less than being a main bitch. There Aww. is no side piece. You are the one and only piece. Aww. I love you, D. I, I love you, Kate. That. And whatever. Keep it sick. Keep it around. You're my main bitch now. Well, my question about this dream is, was it wet or was it dry? I was going to ask that. And then I was also going to ask, did you wake up like proper arriving the next day? We like, fuck, I need breakfast now. Are we full all day? And yeah, that that's interesting. Oh. Like, yeah, were you uh, satiated when you woke up? And then also like, did you remember the dream vividly? It sounds like she does. Because I don't usually often remember all my dreams. I tend to remember. You were dreaming that you were in a relationship with Taylor Swift last night. But Taylor Swift? See, I don't even remember this. You don't remember that you were dreaming that you were in a relationship with Taylor Swift? No, that shagger? I had, no, because she, I don't think she wanted to, but I had what? actively encouraged you to get into a relationship with Taylor Swift because it would benefit the podcast. So you started carrying on a fake... This was my dream. You start, yeah, how did you not remember telling me? You started carrying on a fake relationship with Taylor Swift because I was forcing you to because of the, the num, like the listenership and go we'd get all the Swifties on our side but you were really worried like when she found out what type of podcast it was that it would just like break her heart or something I'm not sure if I'm not sure if uh if the Swifties would really be their our demographic no but they would because they do anything Taylor says so if Taylor is dating the the podcast host of a of a podcast they're all listening to it because the podcast host might just mention her maybe i can get her to wear a sick and wrong shirt on stage she would i think she would totally do stuff like that she's very devoted to her all these like puzzled swifties would be like i don't know why she likes it but i'm subscribing this is also a funny phone call because today i found a fat photo of harrison oh yeah you're in so that means like harrison probably ate a lot of relatives Probably all of them. I think Hannah, I think Harrison would cannibalize. Actually, no, I don't think he would. He's quite a no, prude I don't about think some so. Things. Unless, unless he thought if they you ate this these people, you would absorb their powers. Then he would. That's what I'm saying, and that's what I'm wondering with her. If he's like, listen, my parents have magical powers. They're evil, like Luciferian witches, and totally. they followed Crowley. And if we eat them, if we eat their flesh, we're going to absorb their powers. That's the only way we can do it. How did he cook them? Because I don't imagine Harrison being a good at all cook. I think he's. I think even you are a better cook than Harrison. I don't know. I imagine he'd probably barbecue. 
I was just throwing shade at you then. Yeah. You just deflected it. <laughs> like no, I, I doubt I'm a better cook than Harrison. I think you are. Could, come on. Could well, you ever see Harrison... Harrison like putting a pan over a fire and like cooking up something other than heroin? I had been to Harrison's. <laughs> yeah, he was good at cooking heroin. I'd been to Harrison's house uh, or apartment multiple times. He never had any food. I think he just, he was one of those guys who always ate out. Yeah, or had like a box of crackers or whatever. Yeah, he would like have a box of saltines or something or a package of crisps and then like mostly like, you know, two bottles of Jameson. And that's that exactly was, and how then I like imagine it. A carton of cigarettes. And that's pretty much all all the food contents and beverages in Harrison's house. I know he really liked um, energy drinks. He was super all about the energy drinks because I asked him once about moving to Britain because it was just when the sugar ban came in. He was like, it's going to be really difficult for me. Because <laughs> he can't have he needed sugar. a rock star. <laughs> yeah, rock star. <laughs> but yeah, I think he was trying to get you to absorb their powers. Or maybe it's like an aphrodisiac. A bit of both. Yeah, it could be both. It could be both. I think the weird thing here is, why are you dreaming about Harrison? Yeah, main bitch. I thought we were your main bitch. <laughs> I mean, it's Harrison's just weird. Like, main bitch. It's weird to be dreaming about Harrison or any podcast, for that matter. No, it's not, because if you spend a lot of time listening to podcasts, I guess it kind of para, been, yeah. it's parasocial, and you're, like, you're mates with everyone. It's like when we do the meetups, it's like there's no... I guess like, it we're already all friends. your unconscious thought, because you... It, influences your conscious thoughts so much okay fried no i'm just but i'm wondering how many people actually dream about this podcast <laughs> wet or dry yeah and how many of those are wet that's, that's the important that's the important thing here how many of those dreams are wet all right next call we have here is uh from a listener who okay was calling in about the uh that the person at the i don't know if this is last week or the week before that called in about the autistic student oh can i remember that uh, I know, it was some like girl called ago. in I don't know, last week or the week before. Oh, about, Shelly. Yeah, Shelly yes. about the autistic student. So this, this person's calling in about another story, that experience they've had with an autistic student. But the funny thing about this call is they had like three attempts before they got it right. Oh, were they nervous? I don't know. A lot of people like will go through it and start telling them they're confident at first, but then midway through the call... Then they, you know, the, the, then they start wavering. And the next thing you know, they're like, abort, abort. And then it's done. And they'll call back multiple times. But this is the third. Th third time's a charm. This one works. Okay, this is like my third time trying to do this. I hated my last take, so I'm going to do it again. Um, when I, the last story reminds me of the time I was in high school. So our autistic kids were segregated into these little separate rooms. Good. They had like their own classrooms and everything. And there were these like two the rooms that were like their chill out playrooms kind of. There were like bean bags and blocks and stuff in there. And one morning I was late to school. And so everyone, the hallways were empty and I was walking to class and I walked past these rooms and there is one of the probably six foot for 250 pounds autistic kids jerking off in one of the bean bags directly across from the door and there's a teacher sitting in the far corner of the room just like looking at her phone not really paying attention or not looking i don't know if she knew it was happening i don't know what oh, was the knew. what was the autistic kid looking at? Was he looking at you as you're walking by? Like <laughs> I'm thinking, like Signs of the Lambs, like you know, Star Clarice Starling was walking by, and then the guy like threw the jizz on her. Like was it something like that, or was he just like just staring off, like thousand yards stare into space? Having sex on a beanbag is really really difficult. 
A beanbag chair. Well, yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be better than a waterbed, though. I think it's on par. I would never do it again. <laughs> and so, like, I kind of freaked out and called my dad, and I was like, "Dad, there, there are retards jacking off. I don't know what to do." <laughs> and so he came up to the school, and we talked to the principal together. Because I was like, well, <laughs> <laughs> "Your dad is cool." I mean, your dad was like, "This is going to be the best day ever for me." Yeah, I just no. But I wonder if the dad was just like, "God damn it, retards jacking off in my school. I'm going to the president." I bet the dad was like chilled out about him, but like, you know what? I didn't have much to do today. This is going to be my thing. I, I mean, do today. I would be, if I was a dad, I would be like, yeah, we're going to deal with this. Going this is going to be a, an incredible conversation. I'd actually probably go to like the student council meeting and bring it up there. It. Yeah. yeah. And have like diagrams. Of course, you. I'm <laughs> you know, exhibit you know, A. <laughs> you already have them in your phone handy just now. Handy. Handy. I don't. I, I. I don't want anyone to get in trouble. I just don't think it's appropriate. I didn't want to see that, and I feel like he could be put in danger. You know, I was like a 16-year-old trying to be like woke about it because you know I didn't want to be like, look, I don't want to see Retard autistic dick. children jerking off at me every day. What a snitch! I don't think she's a snitch. I think I also would have been like, how can I waste? school admin time how can I get back at some of these teachers that I don't like I'm gonna be like this has traumatized me and it's all your fault and if you don't set things right suing yeah right you would have been recording this on your phone to watch it later right so during alone time <laughs> in my last <laughs> your year celestial tea. in my last year of school when I was 16 <laughs> I did go to a grammar school so there was very tight uniform laws very tight Okay. I like that. And if you broke the tight uniform laws, you would get into trouble and you wouldn't have to do traditional detention like after school, sit right lines. In your lunch break, they would make you do something. So what I did in my lunch break was I would go and sit on rotten.com. That is what I did. So they tried to take that away from me. So school became my number one fucking mortal enemy. But I got around them because I got the IT teacher because I started wearing jeans to school, which was unheard of. Nobody wore jeans to school. Yeah, what about, did you have like those uniforms or the short skirts? Yeah, I was also, we were supposed to wear skirts, but then I started wearing boys trousers. And then- Wait, were you uh, like, I mean, were you a they them at that point? No, it's just fucking cold. I was wearing trousers to school. Yeah, but, Other I mean, girls you started wearing trousers your gender to school. Identity is what I'm asking. No, but everyone started wearing the trousers to school, and it was forgotten about. They were like, "Girls can wear trousers to school." So then I was like, "Well, I'm in my last year of school. I'm gonna go buy a new pair of school pants. I have jeans. I'm just gonna wear these black jeans with my Dockers, and it's gonna be fine." Because by this point, I was a goth. It wasn't fine. This this is such a bratty story. But they tried to like they tried to take away my rotten day. So I usurped How, them. I went to the computer? IT teacher. You didn't have a phone. How were you looking at uh we, we had a, co- we had a school computer. We had a computer rooms. Okay, so you were on there looking at could you look at porn? I'm surprised it wasn't blocked. It was blocked, but I told the IT teacher that I needed to go on these sites because I needed it for my drama GCSE and he just fucking let me. And we were really good well, we would were that buddies. Have, would that have worked if you're like, I need to go on Pornhub? Pornhub didn't exist back then, did it? Or whatever, porn sites. There's lots of porn sites back then. No, I was still a bit too innocent. Like, I might have been on Rotten.com, but I was still innocent. I was on, like, Find a Death and Rotten, but, like, doesn't mean anything. But anyways, I went, I usurped the school, and then they tried to give me detentions, but I just got the IT teacher to say that I was doing detention in the computer room, sat on Rotten, and that, (laughs) fuck him. I'll wear jeans to school if I fucking want. 
So you were like non-binary before it was cool. I actually was. And I was wearing eyeliner and they used to, every Monday I had to take my nail varnish off in front of my teacher. And it just got to a point where he had a bottle of nail varnish remover in his like desk drawer. And I had to take my nail varnish off in front of the whole, like in front of everyone. Did the other kids have to wear uniforms or could they wear jeans too? No. So you were just breaking the law. I was breaking the rules because what's the? Po- I'm finishing school. What's the point in me buying a new pair of school trousers when I have a pair of jeans? Like I'm saving money well, here, people. Yeah, but there's a uniform. Like, would they send you home? Fuck them. No, they'd give you detention in lunch break. But you get to wear the jeans. I wore the jeans every day for a year. And you get detention for a year. Essentially, yes. I had detention every day for a year. Could you wear like, so did you have to wear the school uniform top? Like a, the shirt? I wore the top. Yeah, but could you have just been like, fuck it, I'm going to get detention anyway. I'll wear my Slayer shirt or oh, Marilyn Manson you, shirt. I want to go back in time now. Yeah, that's a, I mean, you're already going to get detention, so why not just wear a Marilyn Manson shirt? I feel like <laughs> I've let myself down. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's get back to this call. Still got a little bit of time left. When I walk into school, that's not what I signed up to school for. School for anyway. The guy, the principal, told me that he wasn't jerking off. He just has a tick where he pats his leg, and I was like, "Oh, with his cock in his hand." Yes. Because I swear to God, I I think of this autistic child's cock so fucking often. (laughs) I I, like I see it in my dreams. I see it when I close my eyes. This was nearly fucking eight years ago, and I still see this kid's cock. You've been traumatized by dick. And. You know, yeah. Anyway, that's my sick and wrong story. All right. Hate this. All right. Bye. All right. Question here. Are those dreams about this autistic guy's cock (laughs) wet wet or dry? dry? Because that's the question. That's what we want to know. I love her voice. She's got like a kind of southern drawl. She can come into my dreams wet or dry if she wants. Yeah. She kind of uh, of reminds me of Jodie Foster. Stop saying that just because you made. <laughs> so I make one Simpsons reference on the second show, and I'm not allowed to make another. But you can reference like I need to call this, it Science is, of the Lambs. Yeah, but this times. makes sense though. I mean, it's like she's kind of southern. Jodie Foster's southern. She almost got autistic jizz thrown at her. He she could. She still thinks about the cock and has a wet dream. Sue the school. Go back and sue the. Get a get a good doctor. This is America, honey. Get a good doctor. Sue the school. Was he hung? I imagine they're all yeah, hung. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Because, like, you know, tards typically have that tard strength, but do they also have, like, gigantic cocks? Look, it, it's like, I don't believe in God, but I do believe that God gives with one hand and takes with the other. <laughs> <laughs> so you might not have much going on upstairs, but you're probably packing heat. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Was she impressed or, like, take, like shocked by what he was packing? That's what I'm wondering. I totally would have said to the headmaster, I'd have been like, okay, so I'm going to do... I'm going to do like a role play now where I'm playing the retarded person and I'm going to show you exactly what he was doing. And then I would like mock taking down my pants and I would just be air and be like, does this look like I'm patting my leg, sir? Does this look like I'm patting my leg, sir? Until they told me to leave. You know what I think she should do? Fucking hate school. You know what I think she should do? (laughs) What? I think she should go back to her hometown. I don't know if she's still living there. Track this guy down and masturbate in front of him. Get revenge. I that would be a pleasure for him, I think. Maybe not, or he might be like confused. But either way, you know they're going to be on even even ground there. No, because I don't think he is going to be traumatized by it. I think he's he could be. He's even not going to want know what's going on. What if he's? Oh, he's going to be like, what if he's gay? 
He's going to be like, look at this diamond level pussy on this chick. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I just think she might as well get revenge. In fact, I think a lot of girls should do this to guys. I No. <laughs> I think it might actually make society, for the betterment of society, it's better than eugenics. It's called mastergenics. And I think this actually <laughs> might work. I think this might work. I'm going to write a book about it. I like your spiel, <laughs> but I don't like the execution. Uh, maybe we could test it out. We could try. Starting with you, Kate Ramble. I'm not going back to school <laughs> ever. You can't make me. <laughs> Thank you for calling in. Um, I still want to know if those dreams are wet or dry. Uh, give us yes, a call back, 323-522-4032, or just uh, send us an MP3. Um, once again, big ups to all the listeners who support us on Patreon and Apple Podcasts. You are the ones that keep this podcast going. You do support the show. We do appreciate it. Patreon.com slash sickandwrong. Also, if you want to buy some merch, we do have a tea Public store. Just go to sickandwrongpodcast.com slash shop and click on the picture of the Pope. Uh, Kate Rambo found a great Sick and Wrong song of the week, a band that I actually kind of dig. And I, I, didn't, I don't have this record, so I never actually heard this song. But um, we're going to end the show with a song called Urantia by the band Spirit. Um, apparently the, uh, guitarist and co-songwriter Randy California, which is a great name. Fuck yeah. Uh, Randy California was an, was an avid member of the Rancho Foundation. I never knew this. Um, Spirit, a lot of people might recognize Spirit actually, because Spirit, so Spirit was an American rock band founded in like the late sixties, uh, based in LA, but they also appeared with Led Zeppelin at two outdoor music festivals in July, 1969. Um, Jimmy Page's use of the theremin has been attributed to him seeing Randy California oh. use one that he had mounted to his amp. Right, so that's where he stole it from. Yeah. Led Zeppelin are very good at stealing, aren't they? Well, Robert not to Plank. mention, um, there was a lawsuit on behalf of a copyright infringement lawsuit from, uh, from Randy California against Led Zeppelin to, atta- to attain a writing credit for Stairway to Heaven because he claimed that Page copied... Uh, the, the riff, the Stairway to Heaven riff from the spirit song called uh, Taurus. Did you listen to Taurus? I can play both of them for you, and they, it is very close. Okay, let's, I want to hear them. But the suit was ultimately unsuccessful and was thrown out. Maybe so. because spirit don't have the Led Zeppelin money, but Led Zeppelin are known to steal. I mean, the beginning of Taurus has that like finger-picked kind of acoustic mm-hmm. sound to it, and it's very similar to the intro for Stairway. People can go check it out if you want. We're going to end the show here with uh, Spirit doing a song called Urantia off their album Spirit of 76, which actually came out in 75. Uh, We'll be back next week with episode 935. Till then, take it sleazy. She's riding on a caravan I'm walking on an earth-cold land But sometimes soon you watch her begin It's time we stop Thank you.
God hates Australia, land of the sodomite damned. The fag-infested land of Australia is burning. The fire of God's wrath is sending hundreds of those filthy Australian beasts straight to hell. We at Westboro Baptist Church are rejoicing, and we are praying for the dear Lord to burn many more Australians alive.